Good afternoon. It is Thursday in June, a very hot June in Tyler, Texas. This is Bill Allen coming to you live from downtown. If you're watching live uh, in Tyler, Texas, glad that you are able to join me, whether you're live or a little bit later than live. You can watch it here on my Facebook page live or uh, later on right here or on one of our West Irwin Facebook pages. West Irwin Live shows our Sunday morning services. I also share it there and at our West Irwin Church of Christ Facebook page and on our website, uh, westirwin.com. That's Irwin with an E, R-W-I-N, westirwin.com. On our social media and other resources page, click on down to the live streaming and look at that video archives and that's where all of those lessons will be, including all of my recent sermons. If you were unable to hear my sermon this past Sunday, I hope that you do that. I talk about truth, living in a post-truth society, and what that means for us as we ask ourselves, who is our God? Uh, who is my God? And so that is a, a interesting uh, uh, perspective as we begin a series on Sunday mornings on the Ten Commandments. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, we're doing lessons from uh, the Daily Bible in chronological order, edited by F. Lagarde Smith. We find ourselves in the midst of the, of the history of the Old Testament Israelites in the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital, Samaria, and the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. The southern kingdom faithful to the line of King David uh, and the northern kingdom of Israel uh, having many different uh, uh, dynasties that come through. It seems like there's a lot of coups, a lot of, of murder and assassinations and new regimes taking over, none of which is good and faithful to the Lord. Some are worse than others, but I don't think any of them in the northern kingdom are very faithful. In the southern kingdom, we see a few uh, that are faithful. We've been reading stories uh, about different ones and different kings, such as Jehoahaz and uh, Jehu and Jehoash and Jehoshaphat um, and Joash. Joash was encouraged and led. He started very young, as you know, and uh, there was a priest by the name of Jehoiada, and Jehoiada had a great influence on Joash and led great reforms. Jehoshaphat, the king, also had great reforms during his time. Uh, but then it seems some of them, as they went along later in life, kind of like King Solomon, they, uh, they went away from the Lord and refused to be faithfully loyal to him. We see that uh, in some of these that we've mentioned and some others that are coming up. And then there are some that will come along and will kind of take, take on a, a good uh, turn towards the end of their lives. Uh, but in the 8th century B.C. is where we are, or B.C.E., depending on how you want to put that. The 8th century would be the 700s, and it's a very exciting time uh, for uh, Scripture. It's a very exciting time for God's people. The emphasis seems to turn a little bit from the kings and the kingdoms to the prophets, although the prophets are actually speaking to those kingdoms, not just Israel and Judah, but um, the two kingdoms of God's people, but also others, such as the one that we're going to look at today in the prophecy of Jonah. But let's set the stage a little bit first. This 8th century, like I said, is an exciting time. In the 700s BC, uh, Jerusalem and Judah 
find themselves uh, hearing the words of the prophets, just as Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, does. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel has a king that reigns a long time, and he goes by Jeroboam II. Remember Jeroboam? was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel. They're not related at all, but he does take his name. And Jeroboam II uh, rules in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's a very prosperous time, uh, very materialistic. It's, uh, uh, they've expanded their borders. They are very wealthy. And so a lot of the words of the prophets uh, come to that nation, the northern kingdom of Israel, much like it would if uh, a prophet today came to the United States uh, of America. They had great political success, military success, economic success, and yet they had a great sense of sp period of moral and spiritual decline. Uh, I think, uh, much like our country uh, is experiencing as well, not on all fronts, but certainly uh, we see a lot of that today and are very concerned for our nation and prayerful for our leaders and our nation and our world uh, today. Ultimately, the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BC, in the 700s, actually in 721 BC, is carried away into exile and captivity at the hands of the Assyrians. They are the world empire in the 8th century, the Assyrians. And they are just moving west from um, what we would call the Middle East uh, today, a little bit further east than the Middle East. Uh, in areas such as Iraq and Iran, we see uh, the Assyrians having a base there. Later on, the Babylonians would as well. And they move north and they move south and they move east, uh, or actually they move west uh, from the east and are taking over one nation after another. And they take Israel into captivity and destroy Samaria in 721 BC in spite of the words of the prophets that were sent to the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, the prophets Amos and Hosea, and we're going to read about them uh, in the days ahead. In the southern kingdom of Judah, there are also prophets. Uh, Micah and, and Isaiah primarily are sent to them in the 8th century BC because of the faithful preaching of Micah and Isaiah, I think especially, and uh, the faithfulness of King Hezekiah. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah is spared and saved, and Jerusalem is saved from the hands of the Assyrians. But later on, starting at about 605 BC or so, and, and especially when you get to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC and its fall, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah is also taken into captivity at the hands of the Babylonians. Uh, and so that's kind of what's going on. There's a a very active world in the 8th century BC, and uh, the people of God are very active in their lives, in their uh, kingdoms, and in the lives and words of the prophets. And so with, with all of that, let's talk about the first one. We're going to look at the others in the days ahead, but let's talk about this first one. We've read about Elijah and Elisha, two of the earliest prophets. We've read about Joel just this past Tuesday and, uh, and his prophecy and his words, whether it came then. Uh, also, Obadiah, whether it came then or later, is a question, of course. But uh, the prophecy of Joel, probably one of the early ones, maybe even into the 800s in the 9th century, 
Uh, but we heard his words and heard Peter repeat those words in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Incredible stories there. And then we come to Jonah. <laughs> Jonah, perhaps the earliest, the, uh, the first of the 8th century uh, B.C. prophets. And I love what um, John Willis titles his chapter in his books, My Servants, the Prophets, on the book of Jonah. He calls it God and the Typical Israelite. And I think as we read through this story, you'll find out. It's four chapters. It's not very long. And all of us know the story of Jonah and the big fish. He was eaten up by a fish, whether it was a whale or not. I think the terminology doesn't fit, but it's I like to call it a big fish. Uh, what Dr. Willis calls it is a special, one-time, God-created, exclusive, unique Jonah-swallowing fish. <laughs> Something like that. And I think that's probably right. I, I'm thinking there are probably some fish out there that we would, or whales, or whatever you want to call them, that we could uh, find. Somebody could perhaps survive for a few days in. But that's what happens with Jonah. And uh, But let's get there first, shall we? God and the typical Israelite. The question will become, is this also the story of God and the typical Christian in a different day and time? and uh, different characters involved. I can tell you, Jonah is special to me because my very first sermon I preached, I preached on the book of Jonah. <laughs> it was, I was a member of the Lackland Terrace Church of Christ Youth Group in San Antonio, Texas. Wonderful church, wonderful blessing to be a part of that church. We lost one of our mentors and um, one of our moms, uh, Doris Charleville, just recently. Doris and Charlie were just wonderful blessings to me personally and to all of us during those days. Charlie was a youth deacon, Dick and Sally Canada. Dick also a youth deacon. They worked with our young people. Uh, Glenn and Beth Lackey were uh, um, a married couple. They had no kids. They were very involved in our church and they were very involved with our young people. And it was a blessing to have all of them working with us. And uh, my four years of high school were highlighted by uh, all of the activities that I had at the Lackland Terrace Church and with the youth group starting in March of 1972 of my freshman year in high school when I was baptized into Christ by another incredible couple that means so much to me, Ronnie and Karen Clayton. Ronnie passed away not very long ago, a little over a year or so, and Karen, of course, just an angel and continues to be uh, a great blessing to so many. Um, and, uh, and today, I think, is John Elliott's birthday. I think it was either today or yesterday. So happy birthday, John. Funny guy. I mean, just a great guy. The Elliots, the Bartees, the, the Charlevilles, the Toothmans, the Claytons, the Canadas. Um, I, I, it just goes on and on and on and on. The Masseys. There were so many wonderful, wonderful families that were very much a part of my um, growing up life and very much a part of my spiritual uh, progress at a very crucial time in my life, uh, going through uh, my baptism and um, uh, the baptism of my dad and my sister, and the restoration of my mom and our very active life at, at Lackland Terrace, and then uh, my father getting back into drinking, my parents' divorce, and then uh, when we came back after college, uh, the birth of my uh, two wonderful children, our wedding, first of all. Uh, and um, and then our first ministry there. 
Um, and of course, one of the, uh, the, the big primary events of my life in my senior year, uh, the death at age 49 of my mother, uh, the people at Lackland Terrace Church of Christ walked me through all of that, and I will never, ever, ever uh, forget them and never, ever, ever be able to pay them back for all that they've done uh, for me. All of that I think of when I think about Jonah, because Jonah was my first sermon. Our youth group was going out to do a, a Sunday with, uh, I think it was in El Dorado, Texas, a little church, and we went, and uh, Sunday morning uh, I preached, and I think Chuck Peacock led singing, and we had others that were involved Sunday night. I led singing, and Glenn Lackey uh, worked with our young people, uh, did the preaching, and uh, I still remember my sermon. It was Jonah. It was three points. Jonah runs from God. Jonah runs to God. Jonah runs with God. Wonderful <laughs> three-point sermon. I think I had 20-something pages of notes, and the sermon probably took about eight minutes. I know all of you folks that are at West Irwin right now are thinking, wow, Bill, how do we get you back to that? <laughs> Sorry, it's not going to happen. Um, but I, I just remember this story, and I remember those points. And uh, Jonah has four chapters, so today we're going to uh, round that up a little bit. Uh, to four points and look at God and the typical Israelite and ask ourselves, is this does this apply to God and the typical Christian? Uh, and does the, how does it apply to me today? Uh, so from the 8th century BC, the first of the prophets of that great, great time, um, we talk about Jonah. And first of all, uh, as I said, Jonah runs from God. Jonah receives this special call in Jonah 1 verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now we're already surprised because Nineveh is not the people of God. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria is the world empire. Assyria are the ones who in a few decades are going to uh, take over the northern kingdom of Israel, the Jews there, and destroy it and take its people into exile and resettle it. And um, it's just going to be a mess. But right now, God sees the hearts of the people of Nineveh and he sees their sin. And so he says, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to preach to him. Then verse 3, Jonah ran, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah runs from God. God tells him go to Nineveh, which is northeast from where Jonah is in uh, what we would call Palestine. And instead he goes west. He goes to the, west, uh, the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, buys a ticket, gets on a boat and through the sea and is on his way to Spain, basically. So he's going just as far away as he can uh, from God. When he, we say Jonah runs from God, we really mean it. He's running a long way from God. But God is not pleased, of course. And so he sends a storm and it's a very vicious storm and the sailors are trying to figure out what's going on. They know that it's something something big. They know that it's something more than just the typical storm. And so they're frantically trying to save the ship and they're asking each other, what's what's going on with you? What kind of gods do you serve? What Are they mad at you about something? All of that. And they're, they find Jonah and Jonah is asleep. And um, I think Jonah had already given up. 
And so um, the sailors come to him and they say, what's going on? We're in a bad way. Is there something you've done to offend your God? And Jonah says, well, I, I do serve the, the one true God, the creator of all of this. And he told me to go to Nineveh and instead I came here. And, and, and Jonah says, look, I tell you what, if you'll just toss me in the drink, toss me in the sea, um, everything will be okay for you. But the sailors, these pagan sailors, to their credit, they say, no, 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 we don't want to do that. We don't want to deliberately kill somebody. And so they keep trying to make things work, but it just won't happen. And so finally they decide, okay, we've got to do it. And so when they do, uh, they ask God to forgive them as they toss Jonah overboard. And immediately once they do, the seas become calm. And these rough pagan sailors who seem to have more compassion than the prophet Jonah uh, worship uh, the Lord God. And so Jonah is tossed into the sea and we figure that's it for Jonah. He's, he's dead. He's, he's gone. But instead, God provides this fish. God provides this amazing, one-time, unique, uh, extraordinary Jonah swallowing fish. And, uh, and Jonah is saved. Um, and that gets us um, to chapter 2. Um, Jonah is in the fish for three days and three nights, the last verse of chapter 1 says. And so in, after running from God, Jonah runs to God in the belly of the fish in chapter 2. This is what we find Jonah doing. And, and it's an incredible prayer of repentance that Jonah uh, records. Chapter 2, verse 1, from inside the fish, you know, when you're in a, a desperate situation, the desperate times call for desperate measures. That's how Jonah was. At first he thought he was going to drown. Now he's been swallowed by this fish. He figures he's going to be digested and nothing happens. And so he's in there for three days and three nights. Of course, Jesus would look back on that and talk about the sign of Jonah uh, to the people of his day. But from inside the fish, Jonah 2, verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Even if you've been disobedient, and you're in distress, and you're thinking, you know, I never called on God when things were good, and I was disobedient, and now things are bad, and I need him, but I just don't feel like I have the right to call on him. Call on him. Psalm 50, God says, call on me in the day of trouble. He doesn't say, call on me in the day of trouble if you've lived faithfully. He says, call on me. And that's what Jonah does. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. How deep in the realm of the dead I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. And the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. It sounds exactly like what we would think it would sound, right? Verse 4, I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Uh, what a great statement of faith. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. Verse 7, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple, even from underneath the sea in the belly of a big fish. Um, Jonah knew that he could pray towards Jerusalem. <laughs> and really what that means is not geographically, although some do that, 
but rather uh, from a spiritual perspective. Jonah prayed to God, uh, just as Solomon had said when he dedicated the temple, as we read a while back. I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Probably in the belly of that fish, Jonah prayed, Dear God, if you'll just get me out of here, I promise I'll obey your command. I'll go to Nineveh. I vow that I will do that. And I will tell them what you have for me to tell them. And so verse 10 of chapter 2, And the Lord God commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Thank you, NIV, for making that so clear. That's exactly what happens. Jonah runs from God in chapter 1. God tells him to go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach the message I have for you to preach to it. Jonah says, No, I don't want to, and runs from God, the opposite direction of Nineveh. And we haven't heard yet exactly why. We kind of think that it's because Nineveh are the enemies of God and they will kill him. Interestingly enough, that's, that's not why. That's not why. And that's the key part of the book, really. Jonah runs from God in chapter 1. Jonah runs to God in penitence and prayer in chapter 2. And now in Jonah 3, Jonah runs with God. He's actually going to go to Nineveh. Uh, and it's interesting, in chapter 3, it begins exactly the same way the book does in chapter 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Except this time, verse 3 says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a really large, large city, and uh, it took three days to walk through it. And so Jonah did, and he walked through it, giving them the message that God had given him to give them, which was 40 days, and this city will be overturned. This city will be burned to the ground. God has had enough of you Assyrians. The living God of Israel is the one true and living and eternal creator God, and he is also the God of judgment, and he is about to bring it upon all of you. Um, and so um, that word continues, but the interesting thing is even in the city of Nineveh, in the land of the pagan Assyrians, they repent. They believe Jonah's preaching and everyone repents from the lowest beggar to even the king. And in fact, the king issues a decree and calls on everyone to fast and to pray. And he says in verse 9 of chapter 3, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Interesting, it doesn't seem that Jonah has given them an out. Jonah's preaching has just been 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown and destroyed. End of story. But the Ninevites, the Assyrians, they hear that and they realize, oh, we've got to do something. And so they repent and they pray and they fast and they are doing it thinking maybe God will, will see and will relent. Maybe he won't do what he has said he will. Well, in verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. One of the few times in Scripture, I think, where something that God says is going to happen doesn't happen. But you see, that's the conditional nature of prophecy. It's a conditional nature of, 
of the will of the word of God. God says you're going to be destroyed and yet they repent and God says, okay, I'll be merciful and I won't carry out what I said I would do because you have turned to me wholeheartedly. That's exactly what happens. And so Jonah runs from God in chapter one. He runs to God from the belly of the fish in chapter two. He runs with God in chapter three, preaching this word. Uh, and then the fourth one doesn't quite rhyme as well, but the fourth one is Jonah pouts. Jonah pouts, and that is the fourth chapter. Um, and so now we get to see exactly why Jonah went the other way rather than obey God in chapter four. Chapter four, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. You see, we would think that Jonah would say, yes, they heard my preaching and they turned to the, God, to the Lord God and now they're saved and they've repented. What a, what a great day. Let's celebrate. Let's worship and praise him. No, instead he pouts. Why? To, this, to, to Jonah, this seemed wrong and he became angry. Verse two, he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing this Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Wait a minute, Jonah. What? Jonah says, this is why I didn't want to go. Because I know God. I know your nature. And your nature is, I preach, they repent, and you forgive and you don't punish them. And these are my enemies. And I don't, I don't like you being merciful to anybody but me and my people. As bad and horrible as that sounds, it seems like that's exactly how Jonah felt. In fact, he goes so far after God had forgiven them and relented and was not gonna destroy them, Jonah basically says, isn't this exactly why I didn't want to go? Isn't this exactly why I didn't want to preach? Because I knew if I preached, they'd repent. And I knew if they repented, you'd forgive because that's the kind of God that you are. But instead of celebrating that, Jonah became very angry. It seemed wrong to him that God would forgive someone else. God and the typical Israelite is this also a precursor to God and the typical Christian? I sure hope not. I sure hope not. But the Lord said in verse four, is it right for you to be angry? What a great question. Just like we've said it all along, haven't we in this study, in these studies, looking at the, the word of God, the Old Testament is so wonderful and talking to us and telling us and showing us about our God and his relationship with his people. And it means so much to us today. And from the very beginning, God asks questions. Um, who told you that you were naked? He asked Adam. Um, uh, those kinds of questions. And, and then talking to Cain after he had killed his brother, where is your brother? Like God didn't know, he knew everything that had happened. And now he asks Jonah, Jonah, do you have the right to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah says, absolutely. <laughs> yes, it is. He says, I'm just gonna sit here and pout. And he says, he, I can just see him folding his arms and crossing his legs and, and tapping on the sand or wherever it is he is and, and saying, I'm just gonna sit here in the heat, 
until I, I see what happened. Scripture even says, and Jonah waited there to see what would happen. That's why he was waiting for God to destroy it. And if he didn't destroy Nineveh, Jonah was going to be one mad prophet. And so God tries to help him understand why what he's doing is wrong and why what God did was uh, so wonderful. Um, it's very hot. God provides a plant and it gives Jonah some shade. But the next day, God provides a worm and the worm kills the plant and the plant dies. And now Jonah is back in the sun. <laughs> and so verse eight of Jonah four, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said again, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, verse 9, again, another probing question. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? You know, God had just said, is it right for you to be angry about the salvation of these people? And now he's saying, is it right for you to be angry about this plant? And Jonah says, you bet it's right. It's right. I'm so angry I could die. And then God gives him the application, starting in verse 9. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Jonah was madder about that plant that died than he was about thousands of people who were about to be killed and yet were spared. And it made him angry because they were his enemies. And God tried to show Jonah and he tries to show us too. Look, look, don't be angry at God's mercy. However he chooses to bestow it, be thankful. Be grateful. Be grateful because he, he treats them maybe your enemies better than they deserve, but guess what? <laughs> he treats you and me better than we deserve too. That's where we start from. We start from a heart of gratitude and appreciation for the blessings that God has given us that leads us to humility. And then we look around and we say, how, how can I serve you, Lord? How can I, in some way or another, at least to a small, small degree, show you how thankful and grateful I am? Instead, Jonah gets angry and he pouts and and he loses a great amount of joy and celebration at the love and mercy and grace of God. I hope that we don't do that. Jesus warned us in Matthew 5, remember? He said, love your enemies. Uh, God is a God who is kind and gracious to even those who are his enemies. He gives them rain and sunshine just like he gives everybody. Shouldn't we be the same? Shouldn't we be kind and gracious uh, to our enemies? And to recognize that, you know, all things are in the hands of a just and loving God. We live in a time that's so polarized, so difficult, and our faith is so tested. But we have faith in the God of Jonah. We have faith in the God that saved him from the sea, providing a big fish. We have faith in the God that saved those sailors on that boat that threw him into the Mediterranean and calmed the seas. And they worshipped him because of it. We have faith in the God who was merciful to the people of Nineveh. And, and forgave them when they repented. And we have faith in a God who took his time with Jonah and tried to get him to come around. And whether he did or not, we don't know. Um, Jonah is referred to in other places, and another place or two in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, of course. And now we see this story that ultimately comes to life when Jesus says, 
there's the sign that's going to be given to you is the sign of Jonah. Because three days and three nights, I'll be dead and then I'll rise again. Let us determine today that we're going to be more like God <laughs> and less like Jonah. Let us decide that we're going to be more like Jesus and love our enemies and pray for good things to happen to them. Pray for them to come around, of course, like the people of Nineveh did. But trust in the Lord our God. Trust that just as he is merciful to us, he will be merciful uh, to others. And we're okay with that. In fact, we're very thankful and grateful, and we praise him for it. I hope and pray that you have a great weekend. We've got some great prophets coming up. Hosea, uh, we're just now getting into. Amos on the 20th, and then Micah on the 25th. But Isaiah begins on the 23rd and goes for a long way, 66 chapters, so it'll take us a while, but what an incredible book. Isaiah sometimes referred to as the fifth gospel because he says so much about the Messiah. I pray that you'll have a good weekend, and I'll see you on Tuesday.